0: Well, good morning, everyone. How are you? Good, good, okay. My name is Brandon Barnes. I'm one of the elders here at the chapel. And uh, I am here to talk to you this morning about our week five topic in our stay out series of, um, and this morning's going to be about relationships. Relationships. The overarching theme of the past four weeks leading up to this is we're trying to approach these different areas of life where people tend to, Actual practice, not to involve God or His Word in the decision-making process. Areas where we, t- we simply tell God, "Stay out of this one, God. I got this." We've looked at food. We've looked at entertainment. We looked at our money. We've looked at the bedroom. Gary walked a high wire act last week. If anybody was here, go walk out, watch that one. Uh, and this morning we're we're talking about relationships. And. Uh, I was talking with uh, my friend and co-elder Tim Lennis, and he, we were kind of jokingly. He was telling me jokingly about this this story of a friend of his who an, uh, became a, an avid Red Sox fan, and in the pro- thank you, okay, I'm sure Red Sox fans here. In the process of his growing passion towards the Red Sox, something usurped that, and that was his disdain for the Yankees, such that like as his as his passion. Uh, for the Red Sox kind of grew, he started to watch Yankees, the Yankees team play and he'd be more happy when the Yankees would lose than when the Red Sox would win. And there's an actual word for that, there's a word for that, it's called negative polarization. It's something we see in our culture, it's actually something that we see in politics. So in politics and party identity, there's this feeding frenzy that happens, a sense of glee, a sense of joy at the biggest or smallest mistakes of a political opponent. It's not a desire to win that brings joy anymore, it's a desire to see the enemy fail or destroyed. We hate the other team more than we love our own. That's negative polarization. And it's not just negative, it's not just uh, political opponents, but it's also where we draw lines around people with opposing ideas, opposing viewpoints. It's not just a matter of disagreements between human beings, but personal identity has become in our culture culture, so wrapped in, in opinions and points of view that to challenge somebody's deeply held idea or opinion is the same in our culture right now as hating them. What do we do? What do we do? What does it look like to invite God into those difficult places, those difficult relationships? What does Jesus have to say about this? We're going to pray and then we're going to look at Luke chapter 6. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, the path you've brought us on over the past four weeks. We ask that you continue to instruct us in ways that while hard are for our good, Lord, we need your word to remind us of what straight looks like when our paths become crooked. So we ask you to do that in this passage this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. So this passage will be familiar to probably most of us, whether you've grown up in a church or not. It tends to be one of the most quoted, but probably the least followed passage In the Bible, I think uh, Jesus, again, Jesus followers or not, there's much for us to glean here. So let's look, if you have your Bibles, we're going to look at Luke chapter 6. We're looking at 27 through 36. Follow along with me. This is Jesus speaking. But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you. And if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. So Jesus is saying what I think are four kind of hard things about relationships. First, he's saying, as you build relationships, you should consider your enemies. You should find some enemies. And then he says, love isn't just a feeling, love is a choice. It's a choice. And then he goes on to talk about the cost of relationships. Having a relationship will cost you particularly a tough one. And he says, grace is to be the root of all relationships. Just as the Father in heaven was kind to us, so are we to be kind. So point number one, find some enemies. But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. So to love our enemies, I think we have to know our enemies. And I'm sure some of you right now can think of some enemies right off the bat. you got three or four, Right. Some of you might be thinking, I get along with everybody. I don't, I don't really have enemies. So this is, this is my week to, to make us all squirm a little bit, or I should say Jesus' is week. I think where we've probably pushed God out of relationships knowingly or unknowingly is through something called tribalism. Tribalism. Tribalism is kind of what I just described at the Yankees and Red Sox analogy, but it's loyalty to a tribe or a social group that exhibits strong negative feelings for people outside of that group. It's the exaltation of one tribe above another, and it results in an us versus them mentality. And so some quick background on what Jesus is teaching here because it'll tie into tribalism, but Jesus' words were very hard-hitting, and they should be hard-hitting to us, but the Bible was written into a Middle Eastern honor-shame culture, meaning honor and shame cultures are marked by patriarchy. They're marked by family, order, rank, Cultures, uh, honor-shame cultures lean heavily on what's called social capital, meaning that you get things done kind of by who you know. And so if you're reading through your Bible and you see a lot of genealogies in the Bible, that's a great example of an honor-shame culture. Because they they would want to honor their predecessors, and so they would give their family lineage. Or if you go to the book of Romans, it's a great passage to sort of see honor, shame on display. Paul uses the words shame, honor, and glory some 40 times in that book. So this is important because the Jews at the time had become extremely tribalistic. Why? Well, the Jewish culture at the time has, had been up to this point in the New Testament now, had been pulled apart in many different ways. Uh, they had been pulled into other nationalities. And so some of the Jews were trying really hard to stay pure. And some of the Jews actually allowed themselves to kind of be assimilated into the culture. And they were split into groups called Jews and the Samaritans. You can read up more about, about these two groups. I'm just giving you at a high level. There was, there was anger between these groups. Because the Samaritans were seen by the Jews as having broke rank. They dishonored the law. They became adversaries. And this fueled this kind of hatred, and it fueled this sort of cycle of vengeance in relationships. and relationships. So Jesus is giving a very tough teaching to these groups. In America, America was kind of known, we were, we were, we are now considered to be post-Judeo-Christian. Traditionally, we were a guilt, innocence, Society, if you broke a law and you were guilty, you rectified that on behalf of your family or community by seeking forgiveness, or you would depend on the justice and law systems of the land. As mentioned at the start, though, self-identity has become ultimate, not our family and community anymore. So ultimate identities that we tend to create are off intellect, economic standing, political persuasions, for many of us, working really hard to be on the right side of history all the time. Gender, sexual orientation. When these are challenged, we feel a sense of dishonor. And so I think it's fair to say in the United States that it's kind of causing this culture shock as we slip into a form of an honor-shame culture. How do we know? Because things are re- it's really hard to communicate with each other right now. Just watch the news for five minutes. Watch any of, 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 of the way people communicate in social media. To relate, to coexist outside of the tribes that we exist in is becoming more and more difficult. I'm going to give you some examples of tribes by putting this next slide up. These are tribes that have formed. These are, these are, these are places, outlets, whatever that have formed that have, have become tribes, have become identities. Tribes exist. Let me just say, if you feel close to some of these and you feel repulsed by others, you know your tribe. And I would also argue you know your enemy. But here's the big question the tribes overlook. How well do we actually know someone in another tribe? See, the problem with tribal mentality is that it's really easy to judge someone you don't know. It's really easy to hate People, you only hear bad things about. I've been approached multiple times as an elder and working here at the chapel um, volunteering. Why doesn't GBC speak out on more of these political issues? Why don't we take a political side? Why don't we talk about these agendas that we see up here? And I'm going to be honest with you, church, my concern is less about these agendas and more with the heart of a church asking me those questions. Because tribalism wants us to draw up lines. Tribalism wants us to pit the church against this or against that. And I don't think the church can be a tribe like the world. We have to be a Jesus tribe. Jesus came for the rich and the poor. Jesus came for the young and the old. Jesus came for the fat and the thin. Jesus came for the fit and the disabled. Jesus came for the Jew and the Samaritan, the clean and the unclean. Those like us, those unlike us. Those of our ethnicity, those of different ethnicity. We are to be a sacrificial body of people engaging with the world to break down walls. And we are to be marked by reconciliation and unity, following a Savior who led us, who went to the cross and showed the ultimate sacrifice. If you want some examples of Paul trying to bring diverse people groups together with all different ideologies, go look at Corinthians, go look at Ephesians, go look at Galatians, Colossians. Yes, the Jesus tribe, the church, will be rejected because Jesus, the Jesus tribe, will stand on the truth of God's word. And that will always rub the culture the wrong way. Jesus did not compromise truth, but he demonstrated it in sacrifice at the cross. We, too, will be persecuted, but we are not called to take the weapons of worldly tribalism, retribution, retaliation, hate, Racism. We're to follow the Jesus tribe. Jesus taught the upside-down rules. This is a great passage for upside-down, hard-to-understand rules. Love enemy, pray for those who hate, bless those who curse. Why? Because Jesus knows something about human nature, and what he's saying is these are going to be far more powerful, and we have to trust him. But here's the point. When the church becomes anything but Jesus' tribal, we lose sight of our neighbors. Once we label people, once we stop loving, once we set up camp in our tribes, we stop engaging and we maintain only surface-level knowledge of each other. And I'd venture to guess for many of us in the room, we might have some acquaintances with folks that fit into those camps I put up there, but I wonder how many of us have actually spent enough time with others from those tribes to empathize to care, to share a meal, such that you no longer focus on the things that you disagree with them about, but rather your common struggles in life. We all struggle with work. We all struggle as feeling like failures as parents. We all struggle with loneliness, financial strain, unfair treatment, broken relationships, fear of the future, desire for love. Suddenly, the enemy we start to see has commonalities, And if we can't get to common experiences with our neighbors seeing through our tribal tendencies, how do we expect the good news of the gospel to take hold? We have to see ourselves equal at the foot of the cross before we can build up from there. But we know even then, even then when we do that, rejection and anger can still occur. Jesus himself said, if they persecute me, they will persecute you. It's going to happen, church. What do we do? Jesus says, do good, bless, pray. To me, that's radical. Isn't that far more radical in this place and in our cultural moment than trying to instruct Christians on what to do in every political or cultural storm? We're gonna talk about this more momentarily, but not every relationship we see in the Bible has to be a relationship with an enemy. Jesus had close friends. Jesus spent time with loved ones. He loved John and Peter and James. They were close to him. But Jesus went to the hard-to-love people, setting his reputation aside. The point is, you need, church, to have a mix of relationships in your life that challenge those deep tribalistic tendencies that we're drawn to. That's a good, healthy community. Do you have that? Where are you pushing out? Not because you know them personally, but because you've made assumptions about them because of tribes. So knowing our enemies, having some enemies to love is key. But then Jesus gives instructions on how we break down walls. Look at this next passage. If someone slaps you on the cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. Some interesting principles here. Jesus is not saying that he doesn't care about justice. He's not saying that he doesn't care about those who are being acted against unjustly. That would contradict Isaiah chapter 1 or Isaiah uh, 61, where, where God talks about his love and his passion for justice. Or the Psalms, they cry out for retribution, right? Seeking God to act where the people are being abused and mistreated. Jesus is not saying turn your head and ignore the wrongs of the world. Jesus is saying this is how we move into interpersonal conflict. We start one person at a time. He's saying where you have been wronged, where have you been misaligned, where you are in disagreement, where harsh words are prevalent, where unforgiveness exists, where healthy confrontation can't break through. He's saying, don't choose the path of hate. Don't choose the path of malice. Don't choose character assassination. He's saying, make the choice to love, even if it costs you. Don't let it escalate. That's where injustice and wars begin, between two people usually. It starts at the root. This summer, my wife and I kind of characterized our summer as the summer of marriage. I married a couple... We did premarital counsel for multiple people. We did pre-premarital counsel. We did some uh, post-marital counsel. We did marriage enrichment. It was a busy summer. One of the books that we used and we went through uh, some of our marriage enrichment or, or the principles we used came out of a book called Love and Respect. It's a great book. I highly recommend it. But the, the pastor, his name is Emerson Egrich, and he teaches this principle. It's this. Your response is your responsibility. You now He's talking to married couples, and, and, uh, but this applies to all of us. Your response is your responsibility. What does that mean? Basically, it's this. When I, was a, when I was a boy, I had two brothers, and if my brother took something from me, I would usually react by hitting him. And almost every time I did it, I got caught, right? And my mom would say, what are you doing? Why would you hit him? And I'd say, he made me do it. He made me do it. In other words, we blame others for our actions rather than take responsibility. In social media, if you feel you're dragged in the mud, what do you do? You drag someone else in the mud. In our relationships, if someone insults you, what do you do? You insult them back. Here's the question that Emerson asks in the book. When has insult met with insult ever made the other person say, you know what, you were wrong, I'm right? Jesus is saying the power to change another person does not reside in you giving up your responsibility and becoming a victim. The power is in your choice to love in the face of an insult. Jesus is saying true power comes when you look at your your oppressor and you say, you can't make me hate you. You can't make me unlove you. And here's my other cheek to prove it. If this is not true, then let's just look for a moment at the victim mindset. This is powerful. This is what Emerson helps people with. He says, you are conceding that other person's behavior towards you means that you are destined to be disdainful. Those are words from the book. That you are controlled that deeply by another person that all of your free will is removed. Jesus says no one can take your free will to choose to act in love. Turn the cheek as you saying you can't make me me unlove you. You can't make me disrespect you. And what is more, that will change a heart, not cycles of retribution. Now, I do want to say, if you're in a relationship that's abusive, you need to get out of that relationship. You can still express the power that Jesus is talking about here at a distance, through other people, through counsel, whatever. But this is about empowerment, not enslavement to physical abuse. But here's the hard part for all of us, the application Where have you or I in our relationships given all your power away by abdicating your responsibility and becoming a victim? How are insults, unloving gestures, disrespectful behavior actually helping you in your relationships today? Have I said to God, Stay out of this place, I want to fester in my anger and my vengeance? See, Jesus isn't just giving us platitudes. The expectation here is that we're not going to win always through compelling arguments. Jesus in John chapter 5, you see him trying to convince the Pharisees of who he was. And he uses logic and reason and they'll have nothing to do with it. What does Jesus ultimately have to do? Sacrifice himself. It would cost him severely. Speaking to followers of Jesus this morning, speaking to his church, I wonder, or we as a church, have conceded our power in what Jesus is saying to the culture by joining loud, obnoxious culture wars? Where have we become a part of the problem and not a solution? Where have we become condemning and judgmental with hate and tribalism rather than life-giving, life-transforming, redemptive acts, willingly showing our oppressors and sacrificial actions that we choose to love in this moment? My wife and I, earlier in this year, were having dinner. We were at a restaurant, and our server was a transgender woman. We had this very pleasant and very nice meal, and, and we received terrific service. And when the check was presented, I instinctively said, thank you, sir. I used the wrong pronoun. And I could tell that I had deeply offended this person. It was obvious by the body, language, everything. I felt bad on one hand, but let me tell you, every part of me became defensive. All these stupid pronoun wars. I can't even talk to people anymore. Why does this have to be so hard? You know, if the culture just... You know, if the government just... And then I realized something. This person wasn't a culture war. When the check was presented... No know what else to say other than I just want to apologize to you. I offended you, and I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? I received the most astonished look. We began a conversation. Vulnerability set in immediately, and the entire situation was diffused. Now, I'll be honest. I know the topic of pronoun usage in the church is a hot button. I'll simply say this. Using the principles of this passage, when engaging with someone who has no claim to Jesus, I don't believe tribalism will work to break down a wall. I had to shift from this theoretical, philosophical abstraction and internal debate to actually finding a way to love a neighbor, a human made in the image of God. Now, how you work that out in your relationships has to be decided not from a place Of convenience, ease, and distance, but a place from sacrifice, a place from nearness to other human beings. Whether you push into a relationship or you decide, I have to walk away from this, it has to be for the good of the other person sacrificially. Why? Because Jesus says, relationships will cost you, but he says they're worth it. Look at this, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full, but love your enemies. Do good to them. Lend to them without expecting to get anything back. So Jesus is challenging us. He's saying, who is the enemy of my time? Who's the enemy of my convenience? And then he's saying, love hard people. Why? Because believe it or not, you are one of those very same people to somebody else. Just ask my wife. Right there. (laughs) To see, we all have this tendency to make everybody else the inconvenience in our lives. How do I know? I'll tell you one that I do. I commute on trains every now and then. What do I do when I sit down on the train? I kind of spread my stuff out. I like that room around me, right? What am I saying when I do that? I'm saying my space, my place, my function in the world is greater than yours. Or how about when you drive and somebody wants to get in front of you and you speed up because you don't want to let them. Or somebody needs to cross the street and you see them but you just kind of keep going. What are we saying? We're saying my agenda to get where I'm going is more important than you. To see another person as equal, to see other people's agendas as important as mine is to see them as human with the same needs that I have. Jesus is saying the real measure of a disciple is not how you love the easy people, but the inconvenient people. What are the benefits to doing what Jesus says? It takes us from a me mindset to a we mindset I love the way pastor uh, theologian Ron Rollheiser describes what happens in the me mindset we become locked in an inner world where your only obsessive reality where your own obsessive reality absorbs all your awareness such that the outside world has little power to penetrate or even distract you Does that describe you this morning where your reality is reduced to the size, shape, and color of your own inner world. You know what? When a whole society is based on preoccupation of self, then the members of that society become separated from one another, divided and alienated. And I think that's what we're seeing in our culture around us today. Jesus says, if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? He's saying, that's what the world does well. They tribalize. We get in little huddles of people that all like the same things, that all have the same preferences, that that all go the same places. And then we pat each other on the back for helping each other out in that situation. He's saying, what does that do? What does that do? That's effortless. Love isn't effortless. Jesus says it cost him his life to love people that were opposed to himself. Jesus got nothing in return from pouring out his life for us, but he got everything for doing the will of the Father. And that was enough. And he says, love your enemies and expect nothing in return except the assurance that your Father in heaven sees you do it. And that should be good enough. One of the most fascinating studies done on human beings was done in 1938 by Harvard University Medical School. It's called the Grant Study. You can look this up. But it followed a group of 268 men for 80 years. And the long-term study was focused on what question, one question, what makes a good life? What makes a good life? The study took considerations like health, psychology, marriage, children, behavioral choices, stress, diet, all these different things. And it was said when the study was done, it like filled rooms and rooms up with data. I mean, 80 years, 268 men. So listen to this. Dr. George Valiant, he summed, you know how he summed up, he was the lead principal researcher. He summed up all that data that was collapsed, captured in this one sentence. He said, The only thing that really matters in life based off this study are your relationships to other people. Eighty years of study. But you might be asking yourself, Brandon, well, where do I draw the line? I mean, I don't want to enable somebody in abuse. Or in bad relationships, I don't want to keep pursuing someone if they're like pushing me away. Like, what do I do? And I'm going to leave you a little bit in tension this morning on that question. Because I believe the Bible instructs on what to do. I just think we don't want to do it. The Bible tells us that we are to pray in all things. The Bible tells us we are to seek counsel from the fullness of the Holy Spirit in us. The Bible tells us we are to leverage a community of believers and the wisdom that God has placed you in, in this community. The Bible says we are to seek his word. And then the Bible says this, we are to probe the lengths and the depths of grace and mercy shown to us first. And then when we do that, then we act. And we make a decision. I believe, I believe if you do those things, you will do what is right for that relationship. And you can be assured of this, it will be characterized by sacrifice. Relationship principle that Peter gives the church he says above all love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins and I chuckle at this because I think it's Peter's nice way of saying people are annoying love covers a multitude of sins we move forward in grace because we were shown grace brings us to our last point grace has to be the root of all relationships Then your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High because he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. If negative polarization is hating one team more than loving our own, how am I, in my thoughts and attitudes this morning, negatively polarized? Where is it? You see, if the church doesn't break down tribalism through radical love of enemy, who's going to do it? Who else has the model of Jesus? John 12, 32, Jesus says, As for me, if I am lifted high up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. Jesus proclaiming he's going to go to the cross, the place of our deepest need, and he will be kind to the ungrateful and the wicked us. But then he expects the church to do the same. We need to be the ones that lift high and proclaim a Jesus that breaks down hostility, that provides reconciliation, transformation. This is our job. This is what draws people to Jesus. It will be in both word, but mostly it will probably be in sacrificial deed. The church cannot be a tribe like the world. Pastor Derwin L. Gray. Love, love him, love some of his writing. He says, the devil knows well that if people can hide out in tribes, they can churn in their prejudice, they can churn in their classism, they can churn in their racism. But in Christ, he says, we can bear fruit even in the hardest relationships. That's what makes us different. We don't do relationships alone. John 15:5. I'm the vine, you're the branches. If you remain in me and I am you, you will bear fruit. But apart from me, you're not going to do anything. We don't do relationships alone. We have Jesus, we have the Holy Spirit giving us the strength and energy we need. Jesus says, know your enemies, have some enemies, find them, seek them out. He says, love is a choice, it's not a feeling, just a feeling. These relationships are going to be costly, but they're going to be worth it. You will be powered by grace and the fullness of the Holy Spirit, whom you didn't deserve, but God in his mercy loved you while you were wicked and ungrateful. I love the way that Eugene Peterson puts it in John 1.14. He says, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. Meaning Jesus put on the clothes of humanity, fully God, fully man, and he came close to us, his enemies. And he expects us to move close to those we perceive as adversaries. Two quick stories and then we're going to move to communion. Communion. My, uh, many of you know, I spoke last summer, I talked about my, pad, my dad passed away a pancreatic last summer, and um, I love my dad dearly. My dad uh, led me to the Lord. He's a Jesus follower, great man. But I can tell you, in no uncertain terms, one of the things my dad struggled with was he allowed Fox News to disciple him instead of Jesus sometimes. But my dad did something that I always admired. when he was angry. At his political opponents, when he was angry with what he heard on TV, many times he'd get on this little motor scooter. He'd take a stack of these gospel tracks, and he would go to a park, and he would just strike up conversations with people. And he would get near human beings. It reminded him that the gospel is served in proximity to a neighbor. You have to be near people to love them, to hear them, to listen to them. Second story, this is David. David came to GBC through our young adult program. He's a wonderful young man. He gave me permission to share this story. Uh, But David had moved to Groton from his hometown in New Hampshire right around the pandemic. And David quickly found that as he moved down here, he didn't have any friends. He was lonely. He was isolated because of the pandemic. And he had a hard time trying to find community. Now his family is far from the Fox News persuasion and, and subsequently David's only real knowledge of Christians was from people like Joel Osteen, which is like eh, self-improvement, health and wealth stuff, or on even worse, Westboro Baptist, like fundamentalist, legalist, ugliism. Not good representations of the church by any means. So one day David gets this flyer in his mailbox for a church invitation to Groton Heights. David had to take a chance. He had no idea what he was walking into, no idea what he would encounter, but you know what? He was embraced. He found friends there. They discipled him. Slowly, he found Jesus, and then he found his way to GBC Young Adult Program, calling this now his church home. Today, David celebrates his 30th birthday. Happy birthday, David. He's got a myriad of family and friends, a full, rich community, but most importantly, David knows Jesus. Happy birthday. Both the lifelong Christian and the seeker had to go near places of discomfort in order to find peace, community, and reconciliation. Church, if we lose sight of the people we are told to love, our power as a church becomes non existent. We lose the very power of transformation that Jesus gives us. It's what changed you, it's what changed me. Personal. Relationships. I'm going to invite the ushers to come forward. We're going to shift into communion. If you're a Christ follower this morning, but you've allowed banners, tribes, online movements to push you into places of hardness and anger, if you have adopted a victim mindset to another person who has wronged you rather than confronting well and Recognizing your response is your responsibility. If over the past four weeks you feel God told, you've you been telling God to stay out of any of those areas, food, entertainment, money, bedroom, believers in Christ this morning, we can rejoice because grace is new every day. God invites you in. He doesn't throw you out. In fact, you are wrapped in the righteousness of Jesus. Nothing can compare to that, nothing. If you're struggling to love that hard to love person God has put in your life, then this is just what the heart needs this morning. We're gonna end the series where we began it and that is with a time of remembrance of our Savior Jesus. If you claim to know Jesus as your Savior, then this is for you this morning. Those who know Jesus, communion is something we do together. If you don't know Jesus yet, or you're still processing this, we're gonna ask you just to let it go by. We're all gonna have some time to reflect together on these words from Jesus in Luke chapter six. We're gonna put these up. Just gonna take a few minutes and reflect on this, and then we're gonna take the bread and the cup together. Paul to the church in Rome said this. He said, I find this law at work. Although I wanna do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am! Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Then he says, thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then he goes on to say, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread and when he'd given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance. Let me pray and then we'll take it together. Thank you, Jesus, for your body broken for me, for us. There is no condemnation for the recipients of this grace and we can't thank you enough. Amen. Let's take the bread. In the same way after supper Jesus took the cup and he said this is the cup of new covenant in my blood do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me let's pray and then we'll take that Thank you Jesus for your blood that justifies and saves Thank you for reconciling enemies to yourself We give you thanks Let's take the cup